Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators, each location is a community curated and powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems with entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Rob Ackroyd. And she says to my friend, oh, I've just found this incredible singer. She was like in the toilet singing at, at this club last week. She's got an amazing voice. Um, she needs a guitar player. And she asked my friend, Johnny, will you, you play, come play guitar for her next week at my birthday party? And Johnny said... I can't, no, I can't do it next week, but Rob, you know, Rob can play guitar. He can do it next week just for, for a laugh if you want. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pa bless everybody and welcome to another episode of Silent Giants, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. Keep up with my life, music, and more. Be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is Rob Ackroyd, the guitarist and musical director for English rock band Florence and the Machine. Rob is a super cool dude whose life and career began in London. While pursuing a career in film, he had a chance encounter with the leader of the machine, Florence Welch, in 2007, that would land him his role as lead guitarist. Rob stopped by my apartment and we got a chance to chat about his upbringing in London. We chat about his early love for music. He shares a story of how he became a member of Florence and the Machine. He explains his role as musical director, and he even shares a cool story of meeting Michael Jordan. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the lead guitarist and musical director of Florence and the Machine, my friend, the silent giant, Rob Ackroyd. What's up, Rob? Hi, man. How you doing? How you doing, dog? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still a bit jet-lagged, but I'm good. No, your, your name is like Rob, my favorite neighbor. That's like your new name. <laughs> Rob, my favorite neighbor. I need a neighbor. I who need I, a who neighbor. I've known for, has it been four days, five four days. days? Four epic days. Wait, so shout out to Joanna Nordahl. Yeah. Like, wow. The homie. Mm-hmm. Because literally, this, the backstory of how I met Rob, folks, is Joanna hits me up like out the blue. She's coming to New York City from Sweden. We have breakfast. We're walking down the street. We're just chopping it up. It's catching up like old friends. And all of a sudden, she goes, oh, it's my friend Rob. Hey, what's going on, Rob? And Rob's walking his dog. And everyone's like, hey, 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 hey. It was one of those weird contextual things. I didn't expect to see Joanna on the corner of Throop. You know? So it was just <laughs> like when she came up, she was like, hi, Rob. And my brain was just flicking through this file of facts of faces going, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Yeah. And just as she made contact, it, 
Oh yeah. No, no it, it's, <laughs> it's crazy that like that's the thing about New York City that really is wows me out. Yeah. It's coming from Virginia and the fact that like yo, I'm from Virginia. I've been living here for nine years. My homegirl hits me up while she's in Sweden saying she wants to catch up for breakfast. I'm like, right, let's do it. And then she runs into my, her, her mate. From the UK, who's like now living on the block, and it's like this international mm-hmm. meetup on the corner of Troop. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's what happens when you have a walking city. You don't have those too many of those interactions oh. in LA, I guess. Oh, that's a great point. That that, yeah. that that is a humongous asset that like, New York has. Like the actual bodega run up. Mm-hmm. Like seeing someone at the bodega. I, I I can't tell you how many interviews I've gotten. Yeah. Just from seeing someone on the street mm-hmm. being like, "Yo, what's up?" Yo, come through. Let's do let's do a podcast interview. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, it's the beauty of New York, one of them anyway. But you're sure. from London, right? I'm from a tiny little town just north of London, but I kind of spent my whole life in London. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what what part of London? Mostly on the, on the east side in Hackney. I've never been to London. Okay. And so I'm going to speak for the people who are listening to the podcast that have never been to London. Break down like the sides of London. Like what are what what do the sides uh, uh have culturally different? I think the main divide in London some people would say east and west, but the big one is the city is split in two by the, t- the River Thames. Okay. So north and south London. And both of them have hugely different characteristics. Okay. But, you know, it's one, it's, you know, two halves of the same coin. What, what, what's, what's the vibe of the north and what's the vibe of the south side? I think the north was historically more regarded as like the more affluent area. Okay. And therefore the more kind of stuck up. And then the south of the river is a bit more rootsy and it's a bit more, it was a bit, it was, you know, the property was less expensive and it gave birth to a sort of, I think people see it as more of a creative soulful hub of mm. London. But then the subsects of that, of subsections of London, then the north, east, south, west, also very kind of rich, interesting characters to those, to those neighborhoods too. And they're totally ever-changing as well. So you're from the east side, right? Well, just to be completely authentic, I was from a, a small town just north of Hitch, uh, north of London called Hitchin. Okay. It's like 20 minutes from the center of, center of town. Okay. But then when I moved to London, my sister had moved to Hackney when she went to university there 10 years before I moved to London. And uh, so she'd already set up a little kind of hub over there. And so I hopped on that scene. On the podcast as every guest at the beginning of the interview, what do your parents do? Mm-hmm. And also, where are you from? Because I feel like those two things in life really play a humongous role in who uh, we become as people. So uh, what did your parents do? My mom's a nurse. She was always a nurse. Um, she comes from like a family of sisters, like four sisters, and they're all nurses. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, she was a nurse up until her, the age of like 65. She's retired recently. Um maternity ward mostly and my dad was a and he once dreamt of being a photographer okay david bailey offered him a apprenticeship in the 60s Uh, please uh, forgive me who is david bailey david bailey was a photographer in he's a british photographer um he was prominently at work in the 60s he did a lot of iconic shots with the Rolling stones and he did that kind of swinging 60s britons like the london iconography uh so he was just like a big photographer at the time. Um, and he, my dad turned it down because his wife, my mum, was pregnant. Okay. And he just became, he was just a, became like a salesman after that. And okay. kind of regretted every moment of that 
choosing that fork in the road. He regretted that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, you know, he had to do something that was going to get, you know, something that was financially stable, whereas being an apprentice is, you know, isn't particularly bankable. Did that kind of propel you to want to live on your dream more? Yeah, there was no way I was ever going to. I just didn't want to. I'd see my dad. Well, I wouldn't see my dad leave for work in the morning. He'd be gone. But he'd he'd, he'd get home at 8 p.m. every night on the dot just in this suit with this kind of look of dissatisfaction. And uh, even though it wasn't maybe a conscious decision, it was just like I was never, ever going to choose a job where it would occupy something that I have no care in would occupy 95% of my time. Hmm. You know, there was just no way. There wasn't enough money in the world to actually get me to do that. A few of my friends work on, on Wall Street and they're loaded, you know, it's weird. It's a whole shifting thing about the importance of money to me. It's completely shifting. My dream was to have, like to get some money, just be be my own boss, and get a Rolex, <laughs> <laughs> as cheap and as like shallow as that. Sound. I, it felt because we you know, we weren't from money at our house. I was like, you know, no one's had a Rolex in our family. It was like, wow, that could be a mark of. I put that down to bloody, you know. Puff Daddy in the nineties and stuff like that. He was setting that as like a kind of a goal, and then I think, you know, we live. Could you, could I ever consciously spend ten thousand dollars on a watch? You know, like imagine what ten thousand dollars could do to someone else. Oh, true. Like turn their world upside down. We, I live opposite that uh, the men's shelter. Yeah. Oh yeah, right here. You imagine like going to the store one day. I live here. Going to the store one day dropping 10 G's on a watch and walking back past a bunch of people having to start again with nothing. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. I have, I have kind of two takes on that, right? Because if you have, I do believe in like personal, I have an image of what success looks like in my, in my head. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, uh, for me, those triumphs in life or those markers, those benchmarks mm-hmm. are really important to me, like to achieve. Now, if the Rolex is something that I feel like in your life, you're like, I really want to achieve that because that was a symbol of success that I had in my mind as a kid. And I'm living the symbol of success that I had in my mind as a kid. I can sort of get it. Now, I think having 10 Rolex watches is something different. That's, that's right? a good point. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I could have the one. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I know what you mean. And it's, you know, and I, I guess I've been single and just been touring for so long on my own, but now I, now I have like a partner and a dog to keep alive. And it's like, you could spend 10 grand on a watch or you could just like keep that dog healthy and at the vet. Where did music come into your life? Music was something that, um, as most people just very passionate about, you know, one of the beautiful things in life. Um, but I never saw it as a viable career. I mean, I was even told by like my parents that you know lots of people try to make a band, but it never works with people. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'll give up on that one pretty early. But you know, I still learned to play an instrument in in my bedroom when I should have been like sort of learning, uh, re- re- revising for exams at high school. I, I learned the guitar. Did your love come from your dad? I guess so. Yeah, and you know, I shared a brother a, a room with my brother, who's seven years older than me, and he, you know, he was into music. So you know, I was from like. A baby. I was just surrounded by music. What were some of the early bands or music that you like gravitated to? Um, I guess being kind of the first thing I remember when Freddie Mercury died, 
they had a tribute concert for him at Wembley in London. And huge bands came and turned up. And I remember Guns N' Roses played. And as like a seven-year-old or a six-year-old, that had a profound effect on me. I don't know why Guns N' Roses seems to appeal to kids of that age. I guess they're kind of visually quite interesting. And it's all a little bit entertaining, a bit sort of larger than life. But So Guns N' Roses when I was a kid. And then, I, oh, maybe my brother could, listening to grunge really kind of put me onto that. But then the mid-90s, I started because of my height. I started playing basketball. Okay, and um, I got into hip hop around sort of ninety three, ninety four. When did um, Me Against the World come out? Ninety four, I think. I think that was the first. Oh, the Park album. Yeah. Oh, probably probably ninety four, ninety five. Yeah, that was the that was I think the first one of the first records I bought myself. It wasn't the easiest to find, especially in like a smaller town like mine. There was like one record store, but they had a small hip hop section. But they'd only kind of get the marquee sort of titles through around that time. But you could order. You could order anything. So you could, they, even though they would only have like stuff from Bad Boy or like Death Row or sort of the, the big sort of uh, stuff at the time, you know, you could order No Lim- the No Limit catalog and things like oh, that, even wow. back then. Yeah. Um, and we had MTV and there was your MTV raps every Wednesday night at midnight in England. Okay. So I'd set my VHS for that. So I'd, I'd be in bed, obviously it's a school night. So I'd set that, set it up, watch that on the Thursday morning before school. Me and my fr- few friends would talk about that. We'd, sh- we'd make lots of mixtapes together. Wow. There was then, there was, then we started getting old enough to go into London and go to like hip hop nights there. There was a place, a legendary club called The End, which we had a really good hip hop night. And then the really big one that everyone was like a, a a count, um, like a center point for all of my friends and friends that I'd met in generations to come, years to come, London people. Everyone used to go to the Africa Center in Covent Garden. Okay. And there'd be a night there called Funkin' Pussy. And it was like, they'd have a lot of breakers would, end, would, tur- would, would turn up there. And then it would also, so a lot of sort of like breakbeat and like classic kind of golden era hip hop, which was never really massively my thing. Um, all, all the, but all the, you know, the classic legendary influential like new york stuff that all the breakers would dance to but then they'd have like djs going all night just playing all the latest stuff you know and they would you know we'd, we'd listen with what, what they, there was vibe magazine and the source yeah the oh source yeah, is my yeah, big yeah. Thing. um and i was obsessed with their reviews yeah the five mics the five mics <laughs> and then first you know whatever i kind of got less and less into sort of buying the source over the years and now i, I but that, I remember the source always had like, it was like 11 classic albums. They'd, of all the hundreds of records they'd reviewed, only like 11 or 12 or 10 or something had ever got five mics. Right, right, right. And so it was like, you know, it was like three feet high, uh, three feet high and rising, low end theory. And I guess the, the, and the newest uh, record on that five mic, illustrious five mic like this was Aquemini. That's what really did it for me. That blew it up. Uh, but uh, up until then, it was like, you know, I was obsessed with Tupac and Biggie on a kind of tab- tabloidal level. But yeah. then finding finding Outcast changed everything. It was like, this is... And I think the same year, Radiohead put out OK Computer. And I thought they were both pretty similar records in, t- in terms of scope and just, mm. you know, uh, revolutionary releases. You know, things that changed the order of things. I think they were like... It, I think they both... In like sort of Britpop era, it was 
getting a bit stagnated with Oasis and cocaine and blur and it wasn't particularly artful and I think in hip-hop it was shiny suits and stuff like that and then suddenly you know an album that like Outcast that is so diverse with such musical integrity could be received so well it was just like wow this is a this is a huge landmark what was your first instrument that you you picked up guitar well i had record decks as a kid i had a pair of decks as okay. like when I, I at 12 i got some de- uh, pair of decks and a mixer and i was learning to mix like that um did you always have a natural talent towards music i don't think so that's the thing i think like people like to say oh you know i grew up really loving music it's like doesn't everyone most people nine out of ten people grow up just like loving it loving it right it's, it's the what you can hear, you can see, you can taste, you know, there's going to be sounds on, you know, it's hard to avoid music. Maybe if you were brought up in the forties and fifties and stuff like that, and there wasn't a radio, but. But you still music, played it. It was, it's, Yeah, I guess maybe not everyone, gra- uh, but instruments looked so hard to, hard to work out. Like, how can you ever learn an instrument? Yeah. And then I like learned a couple of chords from like a Beatles song on a guitar. I was like the first strum, like an E minor. I was like, oh my God, that actually sounds like the record. This actually isn't that hard at all. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, guitar was the the first thing, the first instrument I learned to play. What was the first step in your career as far as like, after picking up guitar, that you were kind of like maybe joining a band or something like that? I was just a bedroom guitar player because... I'd, I, I, by that time, I just like in my early teens, I decided I wanted to be a director. Yeah, I was obsessed with film, and I was like, "If you can make a career out of doing film stuff, you don't have to wear a suit. You can wear whatever you want. You're <laughs> you writing. Have to wear a suit. You know, that was kind of the big thing. Like, you could just what, you, imagine you, what you could go and just go away to an island and write a film for six months, and that would be work. That sounds like the, the ideal of, of life I want to do. So I was just making film at that time. Make, you know, making music videos was the closest thing to working in music that I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's, so I, I, you know, I busted my ass and went to film school and then joined a production company and started making music videos. And that's how I met. I was introduced to Florence, our singer. It's all really, your background really came from film. Entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was just, oh, you know, I, I just, I, I just played guitar because I, I loved it. I think I, took it up pretty quick people say that i don't know it seems like it was like but a you never had evolution. lessons no no never had lessons or anything like that and, and you didn't play in a band up to this point no wow yeah it was pure luck it was the right place at the right time but you, know? you had no desire to want to uh be a professional singer or you weren't taking those steps the childhood dream was you know watching slash play with guns and roses at that freddie mercury tribute gig like going well, that's like a, a fantasy, you know. There's no way that that could ever, ever happen. So, so you saw film as the practical thing. Yeah, you know, I was like, film, you can probably get into that. You can probably do some music videos. Uh, my auntie was a, a music video producer. So I was like, and my brother was working as an editor. So I was okay. like, okay. I started like, sort of doing work experience in the summers. And I was like, I could, this, is a, this seems like a, um, a tangible industry that you could actually work your way up and conceivably get some kind of career out of it. You know, like shooting commercials or something. And and what's the story of meeting Florence? Um, I was making music videos for this band called Razor Light okay. that were kind of big at the time in Britain. And the singer, uh, his old friend, a lady called Maraid, she was a DJ. She um she had like a big night in Camden, like a big indie night in like the mid two thousands. 
we went one night and um, we were hanging out. She was DJing. And she says to my friend, oh, I've just found this incredible singer. She was like in the toilet singing at, at this club last week. She's got an amazing voice. Um, she needs a guitar player. And she asked my friend, Johnny, will you, you play, come play guitar for her next week at my birthday party? And Johnny said, I can't, no, I can't do it next week. But Rob, you know, Rob can play guitar. He can do it next week just for, for a laugh if you want. Wow. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And then I met her the next week and we played a couple of like covers. And then it just, yeah, she, she was like, let's do it again next week. I was like, okay, cool. And I was still going to work every day at the production company, you know, writing stuff and trying to get it made and not getting it made. And then I'd do a gig with Flo. You know, just in the, in the bar to like no one. And then the manager was like, do you want to come and do this a bit more regularly? Should, let's start doing some rehearsals and like make a crack of it. And then, so I'd, I'd turn up to my office with my guitar, pretend I was going to meetings and just go straight to the studio and read rehearse all day. And it just kind of ticked over. And then bizarrely, we got asked to go and play at South by Southwest in 2008. Yeah. So I had to quit my job. I had to like tell the, go to the boss and like, I've got to quit. I'm going on tour. And he's like, you're going on tour. I'm like, really annoyed that I'd given like two seconds notice. And then we went to NMI, uh, did the South by Southwest and it got great reviews. And then we got booked on the MGMT tour, their first like European tour. And then it kind of just didn't stop until two days ago, three Wait, years ago. That, that's your first band? Yeah, it was really fluky. Yeah. It was absolute luck. Wow. Yeah. It was just total, absolute luck. And, you know, she's so talented. I was like, I just get to stand in her jet stream. <laughs> At this time, are you sad about like leaving the world of film? Well, I was thinking after every tour we did, every like two week tour that Flo and I would go and do around the country, just playing to like sort of half empty venues, you know, and we weren't getting paid anything. It's like, I'll be back working at that production company in a couple of months. You know, this gig, this band thing isn't going to last. Every, every time the tour finishes, I'm like, that's the last tour it's a, is it, we're ever going to have. But it's been going for 12 years. Wow. But I just, I keep, you know, because I'm assuming it's all, it seems so hard to make it in the music industry. Um, all the great bands that we, we came up with that we idolize because we're fans, a lot of them have disbanded and people have had to get on with other jobs and go, you know, do normal stuff. So I always assume that that lay in my future. There's no way this has legs. There's no way this can do so, that we can actually do something. Uh, what was it about Florence that you saw that kind of struck you as different? Um, she's an incredibly sensitive, alert, funny, musical being. That's, that's, she was just, she's just, she's a walking bag of emotions. And that's her price as well. You know, she has to pay for that. That's like her, her the artist's curse, isn't it? That you're hypersensitive to the world. Yeah, but she was able to write lyrics to communicate these things in fa in a fantastic natural with fantastic natural ease and in a way that I don't find corny at all. I find it I find her very genuine and very earnest. And I think writing lyrics that aren't saccharine and cheesy just so it's just so so difficult. And she like she has always impressed me. She's got an amazing voice, and she's never—it was never taught to her. She just is one of those people. 
how did you gain experience, you know, being almost like an only child with your instrument, right? With your, with your musical gift. Uh, how did you learn how to be in a studio? Like, you know, like how did mm. you learn that experience or who coached you through that? We just, you know, Flo had been, Flo had a little bit more experience than I, but we were just going in there and taking it each session uh, as, as it came, you know, um, having a lot of fun with it. You know, the first thing you do is you kind of enact your, you're in a studio. It was like, you know, I was like suddenly, oh, what do I know about studios? I know about Liam Gallagher, or I've seen pictures of like the Beatles and stuff like that. You're kind of, you're not probably working particularly hard. You're kind of enacting fantasies and, and then you do a few kind of crap sessions and the A&R people or the label are like, this is, we pay for this session. This is really expensive. You've got to get in there and get out of here. Three <laughs> hours with something that is, that's going to be released and, and will be out there forever. So like, don't make any shitty recordings. You know, this is a job. So, it, you know, you kind of, you adapted, you okay. know, as you're on the fly, as you go. Yeah. The traditional way of, of what you think of a musician is that, you know, they started off as an band at age 11 or 12, you know? Uh, what things did you have to learn about, like, being in a band? Um, that the people that are, you bring into the band, you have to, they have to be human beings that you've got to suffer for 24 hours a day on no sleep, with no money, with bad food, sharing hotel rooms. You know, at the beginning, it's hard. It's really hard. You have to be really young, in kind of good shape, uh, and just robust. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. It's like an emotional turmoil and it's a physical, physical toll. And you don't, sometimes you don't know why you're doing it. But it's... You have to get on with people, which sounds like, obviously, you have to get on with people, but I don't know, you want to, these people that are in your band, you want to smash their faces in, and you want to kind of hug them to death as well. It's like, it's, it's such an emotional ride, you know, and just to think, and you always just think it's going to be over tomorrow. Yeah. I did anyway. I mean, I look at, I look at some bands who come out, who are just really swag, like, you know, with all the swag, and it's like be gone in like six months and it's going to be <laughs> devastating for you devastating yeah i don't know it's i don't know how, how did you uh become musical director uh just because i was there the longest <laughs> <laughs> you know you, you were there at the beginning of the marathon yeah it's like who knows all the songs because <laughs> <laughs> even that was you know our, ma our first manager 
had never managed anyone before. Yeah. You know, so everyone was learning on the spot. And I think dispelling a lot of these myths, these myths that an industry is hard to master or hard to, to learn, just it puts people off from ever attempting, you know. It's like the idea of learning the piano is so daunting. But if you actually, someone just tells you, the piano is just like, what is it? Nine keys, 11 keys or something. I mean, I should know that. Just repeat it over and over again. It's yeah. not like, it's not a billion endless keys. And the same with, with managers. Like, oh, what, you can, we can book a gig. We know how to do that. We know how to collect the money at the end. We know how to, like, advertise. It's like, this is all pretty simple stuff. And, you know, the industry has worked that out. Everyone's, it's DIY now these days. These huge companies, you know, they're, they're, work, they're struggling to work out what they actually can offer someone. Yeah. You know, someone's got an internet connection at home. You can do everything yourself, you know. It's like, it's, and we did. We worked out how to do, do it ourselves. We had just some really brilliant genius women in charge of our, in charge of the band. You know, Florence is a visionary. Our old manager, Maraid, and, and current manager, Hannah, just were just super smart. And they were just like, we, everyone's making really stupid mistakes. Let's just go this way. Oh, so for folks who are listening to the podcast, uh, what does a musical director do? Like, what are your day-to-day duties in that role? So at the beginning of a campaign, so I'm working with a new band. They have a new album that they're going to be promoting. They're going to campaign. They're going to go touring this, this entire record, yeah? An MD, I mean, it's really a role that the band should be able to do themselves and can can do themselves, but it's just about timing and kind of logistics. I'll get an album, take it apart. We'll work out what the great, the best set to play is, what the best songs to play play are. You know, work out which are the singles that are coming out on this campaign. Prioritize them. And you're working with the artist directly. (laughs) Yeah. On this, this part. Yeah. Okay. Or, or not. You are often given a lot of time. The at that, that point in time, the artist is already on kind of like the promo run, going around to radio stations or doing interviews and stuff like that. So that's why you bring like an MD so they can be work building this, you know, putting a band together, getting a group of musicians that are perfect for this particular project. Okay. It might be a whole brand new sort of situation. What's the setup going to be? How much, what budget have, have we got now to go on tour? Can we afford to pay five musicians for eight months? Or are we going to do, instead of having a live drummer, maybe we just have like a drum machine as well. It's like, you know, you identify how best to recreate live that record that you're promoting. But also, you're also looking at the financial component of it too. It's a constraint. It's not something that we have much control over, but they'll set a parameter at the beginning. You know, they'll be like, you know, the best, I mean, endless money is like, okay, great. You know, we'll get the London Philharmonic to come and do the string section for this bit. It's like, well, you can't because we can't afford to them or anything. So you're like, then you work out what's the best way to do it. Are we going to put elements of the music of the music on track, you know? And if so, we need like a MIDI engineer that's going to come with the band as well. We need to set up all these, you know, on stage is a highly crafted, comfortable scenario that the band can walk onto and perform any song every night, and things will remain the same, you know? Okay. Um, so it's a, it's like it's taking apart individual elements of each song work out who's going to play them and how they're going to play them. Now, are you in charge of the um, band members too? Like, let's say, for instance, the the keyboard player is running behind or the are you in charge of logistics and making sure that people get to where they need to be on time no, or anything no. like that? If you don't get to the... I haven't... Luckily, everyone's a bit, everyone I've ever worked with is, actually, is 
It's been really professional. Whether or not they're experienced or not, everyone seems to you try and you know, hire band musicians that are enthusiastic and want to do it, you know, and that aren't just incredible players with no taste. We want people with a bit of spirit and soul because it's, you know, we want it to, all the music has to be enlivening to people. It has to be, you know, I see so many bands up there with like all these stale old session musicians and it's entirely boring. Yeah. So you want to get a good, a, the, the personalities are so important. You know, they have to be communi- uh, people that are, it just has to be really good people that you can rely on. You know, people getting to the studio on time is their problem, you know. If you're not there twice on time, you're probably out, you know. Yeah. There's no time to be messing around. It's like there's a, a looming start date for, for, for tours. You can't, be, you can't be losing hours for people just turning up, you know. If people want to be in it, they're going to be in it. If they're not, there's a long line of people that are ready just to jump in your place and play your parts. You know, uh, Rob, I had a, a really profound moment um, for me, you know, the podcast allowed me to meet so many interesting people mm. and I have to get to ask them really intimate questions about their lives. And I remember doing an interview with Rhetoric. Shout out to Rhetoric, my boy. He's Logic's DJ. Mm-hmm. He was doing a show at Madison Square Garden. He was like, yo, come through the tour bus. We'll do the interview. That's my boy from back home. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll pull up. And I realized when I walk into the tour bus, he goes, welcome to my home. And it kind of really put into perspective for me what his life really was. I think we've always put a glamorous spin on t- what going on yeah. tour. And when you ask the average person about like, oh, I was just on tour. Like, oh, okay. You know, but I really realized like, wow, I'm looking at this big bus and I'm like, so who all lives here? And he's like, well, it's about four of us. Yeah. I'm like, wow, four people live on this bus. And he's like, yeah, man, I, uh, I've been on the road for two years. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and it was really eye opening. What is it about tour? that people should know for musicians who want to get into that life mm-hmm. uh, and be a touring musician. What are some things that they know? What can you describe the touring lifestyle for us? Well, we're pretty lucky. We, we kind of tour a, a really high standard now and we, we've kind of greened out our tour as well. So there's like no waste and it's, it's, it's a good place, but it takes, it's not a lot of bands get to get to that level, you know, Florence has to pay. For, she's got a crew of ninety people. Wow! You know that's ninety day rates. That's ninety hotel rooms. You know for two years. You know ninety per diems. You know that's three meals a day that she has to provide for everyone. It is the biggest expense, and it's such a speculative expense to pay. So you got to pay that up front, and then you got to go on tour and hope that that tour sells to break even. Yeah. You know. And at that level, it's good. We've got great catering. We've got it's 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 top, but it's still totally unglamorous. You know, you get to a, if you're if you haven't got day rooms in a hotel, which is another crazy expense. You're waking up. You wake up at the venue, in your bunk, on the bus, in the bowels of the arena you're playing. Okay, so you wake up in your in an underground garage, and you roll out of your tiny little bunk. You know. And there's people snoring 30 centimeters away from you in all, in all directions. You go through the dark and you find your little wash bag. You get off the bus in the morning. You kind of slope through the halls of like, I don't know. I met Michael Jordan at Charlotte Hornets. I mean, I came and got off the bus and I was walking out with my wash bag to try and find our dressing room to have a shower. You know, it's gross. That's not glamorous at all. That's not, 
that's not living the baller lifestyle at all. <laughs> you know, you're looking like a mess. You haven't had a shower. None of those morning ablutions have been going on. And then you go about your day and you're kind of, you might not see sunlight for a few hours. You've got to make, you've got to make an effort to go out and breathe fresh air and do that stuff. And then you've got to go back to the venue for 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. to do sound check for two hours. Then you have dinner at the venue. Then you're on stage in a couple of hours, so there's no point going out anywhere. So you're still at the venue. Go on stage about 9, 30, 9 o'clock for two hours. Come off around 11 o'clock, decompress and eat pizza and have a bottle of wine in the dressing room. You're not lit. It's like an eight-hour drive to the next venue, the next state. So you stay at the venue until 2 in the morning. Then your driver wakes up, and then you get on the bus. You drive through the night. Can you sleep on the bus when it's rocking back and forward? Yeah. You know, you're pet terrified that it's tonight the night that the driver's going to fall asleep and we're just going to plummet off a, off a hillside. And then you wake up next morning and you're in the, the bowels of another arena. <laughs> it's like, can you do that? How yeah. long can you do that for without cracking up? How long can you do that before without screaming at a bandmate for no reason? How long can you do that before you don't want to go on stage and play a good show? How, how long before that? All accumulates into bad shows and then, then you don't book another tour and you start going down. It's, it's a precarious balance. And it's yeah. not glamorous. What 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 pro- what provides that uh that stability for you, that mental stability while you're on the road for for that amount of time? Thinking how lucky I am. At the end of the day, how lucky I am. And you work, and then the longer the tour goes on, you're like, Am I lucky? Is this living? This is the dream, or this is the idea of the dream. Nothing's ever quite the dream. You get quite close to the dream. It's not quite the dream. You know, it, no, all my problems are not solved. They never have been solved by this. You know, it's a way you choose your life. And it's easy to do it when you're single and solo. But as soon as you've got other people in your life, it becomes a lot more complicated. And yeah. then you're like, why am I doing this? when I could be doing something else. Yeah. You know, this is stressful. It was fun when I was 23. You know, I had nothing to lose. Right, right. You know, I had no money in the bank. You know, that's fine. That's normal. <laughs> you know, you can go out and you can get drunk. and But then things kind of change. I still don't understand how, like, Mick Jagger is going on on tour, world tour at 74. Oh, dude. He just had a baby and heart surgery in one year, and he's going on a world tour. It's like, what are you doing? I have another question, too, about about the business side of, of it. Like, how did you learn the business side of music uh, and your role as an, as an MD? And, and what can people do? Uh, to prepare for that side of their professional career? In terms of what, making a, a, mon- a financial stable like, career or? Yeah, because I, I have no idea of like what, it's, what is the process by which you get paid in that process of being an MD or being in a band on the road. Like are you, are, if, if who, who pays you? Is it the label? Is it the person who's like the manager? Is it Florence? Is it? That come, it's. That freelance lifestyle is, is, as you know, it's, it's difficult to keep track of your finances. Right. I guess you got. I think get a good accountant to show you all the tricks of the trade. Okay. You know, because there's lots of there's a million loopholes. If you're traveling, just invest in people that ha- do your own research if you want to. But also, don't be afraid to delegate to experts. There's so many experts out there, you know, ready to help. I think. Who who was the expert that helped you? Well, getting a music, um, a music accountant, you know, it was like, because it was like, where am I getting my money from? Okay, so I'm going to get money. I get paid by Florence. Um, where else do you get money? You better start 
writing as much as you can because you want to have writing credits. You want a pub. You want publishing money to come in because that stuff will come in, like you know, every four months forever. Okay. Okay. You know, it's hard to make money in music these days unless you've got like real nows. You know, and avoid the trappings of spending all your money on clothes when you're like in a band or something. I don't. I don't know. I'm not even sure if I. I certainly haven't mastered it. It's. It's kind of like a trial by fire type of. It's a huge trial by fire, but I, I guess that isn't that. Isn't that kind of non? That's not specifically. That's not in particular to the music industry. I guess it's like every kind of gig economy or every gig, right? right. Based thing. It seems, which it seems so many. Right, because I've, I've gotten a, a, a grasp on like the publishing side uh-huh. of music, but not the touring side, and and like how that particularly. Um, works. Do you still get like direct deposited, or do they give you like a paper check? Like, how do you do that when you're on the road? Like, I, it's like your business oh, is direct, on the it's move. A, it's a you you know, you start your own company, your own limited company. Okay, and everything goes through that. Then okay, so then you're 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 playing it you're playing it safe, but like in terms of like tax and income revenue sort of streams, and then you know, it's really another unglamorous thing. It's a lot of hours just like writing out invoices and chasing invoices and stuff like that. You know. Record labels are notoriously difficult to kind of get paid from. They make it, they make you kind of fill out a million bits of paperwork, and it's just about vigilance and going after every. You know, so you need someone to tell you that every time you're on TV, you get paid. You know, all these little things like if you play, if you play, if you're if you play on a track, even if you play like one note on the piano or something on a track, and it's being played in public, you're entitled to royalties you know okay. there's a million revenue streams out there waiting that no one's going to tell you that you're entitled to but everyone else is collecting there's always someone collecting money for you and holding it for, for you that and like if you don't know what it is you have to if you have to then find out what's owed to you and then find that person and invoice them it's a murky old game it's a bunch of people trying to steal your money all the time okay okay i have a question that's off the beaten path before we close out you met michael jordan <laughs> That was one. I was not going to let that not be talked about. So wait. that was the, that was that was huge. Okay, every event, we play a lot of basketball arenas, and they have like the court, obviously, but they have those practice facilities, and that's just one thing to like to buy some time. I go and play basketball everywhere I go, and you get to they sometimes let you go and use the the practice courts, which is incredible. You know, as like a basketball fan as a kid. I'm at, the, at these venues and I'm shooting with like real NBA balls and like glass patterns, all the insignia of every team there. And so we were shooting around the Hornets ground and there was, um, I was walking out back to the dressing room and there was a, one of the rookie, I can't remember his name, but he'd, he'd, it was just before the season started and we, him and I were just talking because we bumped into each other. He was like, what are you doing here? I was like, oh. And I was like, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm a rookie. And I was like, oh my God, you're a rookie. So wait, and he'd just come from high school, I think. I was like, wait, you're 19. You are in the NBA, man. You made it. This is the dream. You've made it. I was so stoked. He was like, yeah, I guess it's pretty cool, right? I was like, yeah, it's insane. This is like an alternate reality that you've made it to the NBA. And he's like, yeah, I guess so. And then this shadow passed over both of us. And we turned to sort of look in the light and this deep voice. He said, isn't it? said, uh, are you hitting the practice court today? Today was supposed to be a day off. And the rookie I was talking to just like didn't even look at me. He was like, yeah, I just thought I'd come and shoot around, turn around. And Michael Jordan is just looming above us. Wow. And isn't that dude only 6'6"? Six, 6'6", six? Six, six, yeah. I'm 6'5", and he was about three foot taller than me. <laughs> which I don't understand. 
And all I could say was, Michael, like that. <laughs> and he didn't even look at me, but he put his hand, he, he carried on talking to the rookie, he put his hand down for me to shake, and I just clasped his hand. That was the size of this table. Abs- he was a, he's an enormous fella. Wow. Absolutely enormous. And we just shook, I just shook his hand, and he carried on talking to the rookie, and then those two walked off, and I was just kind of stood there, and then I went and showed my hand to everyone in the arena. That was wild. That was wild. The GOAT. The GOAT. The GOAT, man. The greatest the of all time. Yeah. This he, man, as I'm rocking my, my bread for Jordans right now, I like, love my Still Jordans. haven't washed his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing like riffing solo. Just like. <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, Rob, my last question before we get out of here, man, is, um, you know, I realize that if you want to be great, that it comes with sacrifice. Um, you know, everyone sees the glitz and the glam. They see the big stage. They... They see the Instagram posts uh, of this amazing life. Mm-hmm. But what have you had to sacrifice to achieve the great things in life that you've achieved? Um, I haven't been available or present in a lot of all of my, a lot of important people in my life's, in my life, in their lives. I've missed a whole bunch, a whole bunch. You know, it started off with like the odd wedding, not being able to make that. And then it's like birthdays and it's Christmases and it's, I'm now kind of like a, a periphery person in a lot of people's lives. And it's just because we've been on tour for so long, literally physically out of the country. That's, that's something that does happen. You're, you don't think it will happen, but you do leave a lot of people, not behind, but um, you miss a lot of the kind of, rudimentary normal bits of relationships you have with people that build that maintain these great relationships you're suddenly just not there and you miss important like evolutions in their life kids being born and and i guess that's that's a bit of a sacrifice you know you miss that regularity you know people start treating you a bit differently as well I'm not sure if that's due to just like the anonymity growing or or what, but it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's quite a lonely pursuit. You've got to be kind of ready for that. That's why you have like your family becomes your band, mm. I guess. You know, at first it's just like a bunch of random musicians, and then you spend ten years with them, and you've done quite a lot. And it's but you've missed every christening, every Christmas, every birthday, every wedding there has been. And these new lives are starting in your absence. Yeah. yeah. That might be it. Well, Rob, man. Rob, my favorite neighbor. <laughs> Rob, a.k.a. bringing uh, the David Attenborough vibes to the podcast. I really appreciate you being here, bro. Thank, Thank you so you much for, for your, me. No, for your for insight, man. No. And, and always giving back to the culture. Man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Silent Giants and to our special guest, Rob Ackroyd. This episode of Silent Giants was mixed by Joshua Coleman. Are you a fan of Silent Giants? If so, do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. I'd be forever grateful. And lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, OPP. Other people's podcast highlights America's top podcasters and the dope shows they created. You can find OPP with Corey Cambridge on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. God bless y'all. Till next time.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 